Let's go ahead and open our Bibles to Revelation chapter 20. Revelation chapter 20. The title of my message this morning is The Millennial Kingdom. When the study of eschatology is, is embarked upon in any type of church, three of the most neglected chapters of the Bible in that study are Revelation 20, 21, and 22. And yet I find that they are the, some of the most significant chapters in the study of eschatology. They include the millennial kingdom and the new heavens and the new earth. And our understanding of these three chapters will allow us a hope in troublesome time where we see justice in a world that is uh, thriving in injustice where we see that the Lord holds individuals accountable for sins that they believed they were going to get away with here on this earth. As we begin this morning, let us understand now that we have seen the rapture of the church take place. The world had been plunged into a seven-year period of tribulation, with the last three and a half years being called the Great Tribulation. In chapter 19, now we've come, Jesus has returned, the rider on the white horse. The Antichrist and the false prophet have been cast into the lake of fire. And the Lord now physically has returned to this earth. Now the question is, Well, what happens next? What happens after Jesus returns to this earth? That's what we will begin to explore this morning as we look at chapters 20, 21, and 22 over the next couple of weeks. As again, I say as believers, I think it's imperative that we understand what these chapters uh, indicate to us. And allow us to see that all of the loose ends that we may have uh, gathered over the course of the scriptures from Genesis to this point are now all going to be tied and wrapped up for us to show us that the work is truly complete. And those words that Jesus said on the cross now come to full fruition when he said it is finished. So let us take a moment to read chapter 20 of the book of Revelation. In verse 1, John writing, he says, he says, Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, having the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain in his hand. And he laid hold of the dragon, that serpent of old, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. And he cast him into the bottomless pit and shut him up and set a seal on him so that he should deceive the nations no more till the thousand years were finished. But after these things, he must be released for a little while. And I saw the thrones and they that sat upon them And judgment was committed to them. 
And then I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for their witness to Jesus and for the word of God, who had not worshipped the beast or his image and had not received his mark on their forehead or on their hands. And they, li- and they lived and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. But the rest of the dead did not live again until the thousand years were finished. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is he who has part in the first resurrection. Over such the second death has no power. And they shall be priests of God and of Christ and shall reign with him a thousand years. Now, when the thousand years have expired, Satan will be released from his prison and will go out to deceive the nations which are in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, together uh, them to uh, gather them together to battle those whose numbers is of the sands of the sea. They went up on the breadth of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city, and fire came down from God out of heaven and devoured them. The devil, excuse me, the, the, the devil, the devil who deceived them was cast into the lake of fire and brimstone where the beast and the false prophet are, and they will be tormented day and night forever. And then I saw a great white throne and him who sat on it for those uh, from whose face the earth and the heavens fled away and there was found no place for them. And I saw the dead, small and great, standing before God. And the books were open, and another book was open, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged according to their works by the things which were written in the books. The sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades delivered up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one, according to his works." Then death and Hades were cast into the lake of fire, and this is the second death, and anyone not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. As we've read through chapter 20, many of these concepts may seem foreign to you. Maybe you haven't looked at these chapters in quite a while, or for some, maybe never in their Christian life. But understanding the events of chapter 20 will tie up all the loose ends gathered throughout the Old Testament and allow us to proceed into the new heaven and the new earth in the manner in which God prescribed us and would have us to proceed. And all begins in chapter 20 from a premillennial position, which we hold to here at Calvary, that these things are yet future. For some of our brothers and sisters who hold an amillennial position, they believe that we are currently in the millennial period right now, and the things mentioned here were accomplished at the time of Christ's crucifixion. There are many inherent problems with that position, namely, Satan's chain must be way too long, and we'll talk about that in just a moment. There also is the understanding of post-millennialism, where we many believe that it is our responsibility to prepare the world for the return of Jesus Christ. 
And this idea is found in those who hold to an understanding of eschatology called kingdom theology or restoration theology as it's currently called, where we as believers are to prepare and to make the earth the place that uh, Jesus would want to find at his return. I don't think we're doing such a good job in that regard if that's truly the case, is it? It seems like things are getting worse, not better. But a premillennial position, which we hold to here at Calvary, would say that this event, this period of time, this thousand-year period of time, and notice that six times in this chapter, a thousand years is given to us. There are some who desire to believe that this is only allegorical or simply spiritual, that it doesn't necessarily mean a thousand years. Because a thousand years can be used and is used in the Old Testament in places that uh, give it an understanding of just a long period of time, speaking in, in hyperbole and so forth. However, though, throughout the course of the book of Revelation, we find that the numerical information given to us is literal. And therefore, to change our interpretation method coming into the 20th chapter would seem to be inconsistent exegetically. No, I believe that this is an actual, literal, thousand-year period of time. And that period of time begins with the imprisonment of Satan. The imprisonment of Satan. Let's look at verse 1 together. John begins this period of time by describing and accounting for us that an angel coming down from heaven, having the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain in his hand. We've been introduced to this bottomless pit before in the New Testament, the abuso in the Greek. This is the pit that Peter and Jude talk about concerning the angels who have not kept their proper place, but were cast into this bottomless pit, this abuso. And it appears from our text that an angel is sent by God, we don't know which angel it is, to bind Satan and to cast him to the bottomless pit. In Revelation chapter 12, we discovered that Satan had been kicked out of heaven and thrown to the earth. And that surprises many Christians theologically. Oh, I I didn't know that Satan still had a, a, a place in heaven. I didn't know he occupied that place in heaven. Sure he did. Through the New Testament period of time, we know that he was again accusing the brethren. Standing as a, uh, before God the Father as our great prosecutor. Reminding God the Father each and every day of our unworthiness to be considered his kids. Reminding the Father of our continuous lineage and list of sins, known and unknown to those around us. And John says, if it weren't for our great advocate, the one who became the propitiation of our sin, we would be found guilty and cast out of the presence of God. But it's at that moment that Christ stands up and says, Father, they are one of mine. See them through me and through Christ. In the eyes of God the Father, he sees the perfection necessary to allow us to remain in fellowship with him in heaven. 
But now that he's been cast to the earth, he is now cast into this bottomless pit. And he is sealed for a thousand years. Verse 2. Then he, that is the angels, laid hold of the dragon, that serpent of old, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. Many of the new commentaries written in Christianity today present a poetic position concerning the interpretation of Genesis, believing that the first three chapters of Genesis are simply poetry. They do not believe that God created the world in six days. They do not believe in a literal Adam and Eve. They do not believe that Satan, or I'm sorry, the serpent was Satan at that moment. And as a result, it skews the entire understanding of theology going forward throughout the Bible. Systematic theology takes a series of verses from the Bible and systematically orchestrates them so you can see a theology developing before you. Biblical theology is a theology that starts in the beginning and ends in the Revelation, and you see the progression of the unfolding of that theology throughout the Bible. So if we start off on the wrong foot in Genesis, we'll probably end up in the wrong place by the time we get to Revelation. And it's amazing to me because these people are really known to be very intellectual and they're regarded as very godly people. But I don't know how we can dismiss the serpent being Satan when Revelation here clearly tells us that he was the serpent of old. And so there's the disconnection. Anytime you want to interpret Scripture, the very first book you go to to do so is the Bible. Allowing the Bible to interpret the Bible. Much of the interpretation taking place in scholarly scholarly circles today uses extra-biblical writings written around the same time to help them understand, define, and interpret the Scriptures. But I think that's misgiving because the very first thing you do or need to do to interpret an inspired book is to compare it with the inspired book that that it's contained in. So this individual, Satan, the devil, the serpent from Genesis is cast to the bottom of this abuso, this abyss, for 1,000 years, bound in chains so that he no longer has the ability to deceive the nations any longer. Notice that in Thessalonians chapter 2, the Antichrist's prime directive, if you will, was to deceive the world through the working power of Satan, and Satan will no longer be able to do so during this thousand-year period of time. And then many scholars wish it would just end right there. Unfortunately, the latter part of verse 3 gives us a promise that we may not want to see fulfilled. But after these things, he must, notice that word, be released for a little while. You mean we're still not done with this thing yet? He's got to come back around? Yes, and we're going to see the reason for that in just a minute. But it is according to God's plan that he do so. And then he'll be dealt with 
decisively and swiftly in his return after the thousand-year period of time. We as Christians must be reminded that Satan is a literal creature, a fallen angel, one who Jesus says has come to steal, kill, and to destroy. Paul makes it abundantly clear that we need to put on the whole armor of God to properly be able to stand against the wilds of the devil. Peter reiterated and stated that Satan goes about like a roaring lion seeking in whom he may devour. So to my amillennialist friends, I would say that for one who is supposedly bound in chains at this moment, he is sure active on this, in this world today. And therefore, I think the amillennialist position is inconsistent with the exegetical text of Scripture. So now while Satan is bound, verse 4, and after this he says, and I saw thrones, notice that, it's plural, and they sat, who sat on them, and, they, and judgment was committed to them. Three indications that the thrones are plural, those who sat on them are more than one, and to them it had been given the privilege of judgment. The Gospels clearly tell us that God the Father gave judgment into the hand of the Son. Why? Because the Son had done all that He possibly could to save fallen creation. And therefore, judistically, it was the proper thing to do, to make and to allow Jesus then to judge the world. But here we have an individual group judging an individual group. And notice that it's plural. Now your first, indica- your first thought might be, well, this is simply referring to the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And I can understand how you would initially draw that conclusion. But let us be remembered that Jesus made a promise to a certain group of people. And that promise is found in Luke 22, verses 29 and 30. And as his disciples were arguing upon who would be the greatest in heaven, he concludes his response with these words. And he says, And I I bestow upon you, that is the disciples, a kingdom, just as the Father bestows upon me, that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom, and sit on thrones judging the twelve tribes of Israel. I believe that verse 4 is indicating that this is the fulfillment of the promise that Jesus made to his disciples. The tribulation period is God dealing with the entire world and specifically the nation of Israel. Israel was given all of the benefits and privileges of the knowledge of God, and yet they missed and they rejected their Messiah at his first coming. When Daniel prayed in Daniel chapter 9 concerning how long will Israel have to remain under the judgment of God, the incredible prophecy was given in verses 24 through 27 that we've looked at. 
And the one year or seven year period that was left was the seven year period found in the book of Revelations, chapter 6 through 19. Those saved during the tribulation period, remember in chapter 7 of Revelation, that 144 drawn from the 12 tribes of Israel are set out as apparent evangelists during the tribulation period of time to call those to repentance. Again, some spiritualize this and believe that this is uh, just indicating through 144 demonstrating the completeness of the church because in their idea of eschatology, the church goes through the great tribulation period. But I find that inconsistent based on what Paul said that God would spare us from judgment, from the wrath that is to come. I find that inconsistent when Paul then writes to the Thessalonians in chapter 2 of Thessalonians 2, when he states that these things still yet have to take place. And no, you are not in the great day of the Lord. That being said, I believe that what is happening here is that the 12 apostles are now given the privilege bestowed on them that Christ promised them in the Gospel of Luke. And notice that there is a very specific group that they have been given this authority over. Let's continue reading in verse 4. And I saw the thrones and they that sat on them, and the judgment was committed to them. Then I saw the souls, notice this, of those who had been beheaded for their witness to Jesus and for the word of God. These individuals who did not worship the beast, that is the um, Antichrist or his image, and had not received his mark, that is the mark 666, on their foreheads and on, and on their hands. And they lived and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. There will be those during the tribulation period who will not align themselves with the Antichrist. They will resist his temptation, his allurement, his deception. They will not bow down to the image that is created for him and of him that appears to come to life. And they will not pledge their allegiance to him through the receiving of the mark either on their hand or on their forehead. Now, when John's original audience read this, their first thought would have been of Caesar. Because Caesar saw himself as a god. And he had resurrected temples throughout the known world that were specifically houses to encapsulate images of him. And that people would come and worship them. And if they, weren't, uh, if they wouldn't, they would be executed for their failure to do so. But here John is saying that ultimately when the Antichrist comes, those individuals who resist and are, uh, have come to saving faith in Jesus Christ during this time, most likely of Jewish descendant, they shall reign with Christ during this thousand-year period of time. Now, they're going to have to be executed for their faith. Their faith will demand that during the tribulation period. You know, I've often had people say to me years ago that, 
Well, if, you know, if the rapture occurs and I see the rise of the Antichrist, I'll repent and give my life to Jesus Christ. And I have to ask them the question, if you can't live for God now, how are you going to die for him then? Now let's be clear, because there is some confusion on this. Revelation also tells us that those who accept the mark of the beast are beyond redemption. They have solidified their fate in eternity by doing so. As you look at Revelation 13 and other places, there's no hope for them. It's one or the other. There's no middle ground to be had here. And Jesus fulfilling his promise to his disciples, they are allowed to judge these. The word judger is a little different. It's, it's evaluate. It, it, we're not talking about sin or consequences of sin. We are talking about how they lived their life and the rewards in which they will inherit due to the manner in which they lived their life. And it's, it's interesting that Jesus said, blessed are those who believe in me, you know, who have not seen. You have seen. He says, blessed are those who have, believe in me and have not seen. The apostles were given the opportunity at the end of their life to renounce Christ, many of them, or die, and all of them chose death. They chose Christ when they simply saw him as a carpenter's son from Nazareth. They followed him. They left their old lives behind, hoping and believing that he would immediately establish his kingdom and began to fight amongst themselves at who would sit at his right hand. And now they have this place of authority that had been promised to them. And they, along with those who've died in the tribulation period, verse 5, I'm sorry, uh, the end of verse 4, and they lived and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. But the rest of the dead, now these is, this is referring to unbelievers, did not live again until the thousand years were finished. This is the first resurrection. The first resurrection actually be began with Jesus Christ, who was called the first fruit of the resurrection. Now there is a difference between resurrection and resuscitation. Let me make clear of that. There were those that Jesus rose from the dead, you know, the little girl and Lazarus and so forth, who were raised from the dead during his earthly ministry. But unfortunately, that little girl and, that, and Lazarus, again, at one point in time, had to physically die, right? That's resuscitation. Resurrection, now it's still res resurrecting them from the dead, but unfortunately, they have to die physically again. Resurrection is no longer physically dying anymore resurrected permanently, eternal life, etc. Eternal existence, because there will be eternal life also found in hell, unfortunately. Uh, let, me, let me clarify that. Eternal existence in hell, eternal life in heaven. Let me clarify. And so, the first resurrection started with Jesus climax at the time of the rapture of the church, and now ends with the resurrection of the tribulation saints, those who have come to faith in Christ during that period of time, and now the first resurrection is complete. And he says here, blessed and holy is he 
who has part in the first resurrection over such the second death, uh uh-oh, that's still yet to come, has no power. But they shall be priests of God and of Christ and shall reign with him for a thousand years. The millennial kingdom mentioned here doesn't give us a whole lot of information concerning it. The actual details of this millennial kingdom period are found in the Old Testament. Theologically, there are four reasons why the millennial kingdom must occur. Number one, it is a fulfillment of God's promises to the nation of Israel and to King David. These are when the covenant promises made to the nation of Israel and King David are kept and completed with Christ physically reigning from Jerusalem for that thousand year period of time. There are many covenants that are talked about and made in the Old Testament that have not yet come to pass. Now, some scholars, especially in our Reformed community, our brothers, they believe that, of course, all of those covenants were fulfilled in the person of Jesus. Many of them were, but there were literal covenants made directly to the nation of Israel and directly to King David that must be physically fulfilled as every other covenant that God ever made with man has been fulfilled. And this is done during the millennial kingdom. And of course, many of our Reformed brothers and sisters also believe that Israel is now spiritual Israel and the church has become Israel. But yet, we have the nation of Israel once again regathered in their land as Ezekiel 38 promise, I'm sorry, 36 and 37 promise us that would occur. No, I do see a distinction between the Gentile church in Scripture and the nation of Israel. Though we are all saved in the same manner in and through Jesus Christ, and that's what those verses mean when it says that there are no longer male or female uh, masters or servants, Jew or Gentile. It means that we're all saved through the same manner through Jesus Christ. There is only one gospel. I am not a proponent of the two gospel theory. However, though, the plan and, and the... Uh, promises made to Israel were unique and they will be fulfilled in the millennial kingdom. Secondly, the disciples were affirmed this position of uh, authority of judgment now fulfilled here in the millennial kingdom. Third, this kingdom will be a worldwide display of Christ's glory when all nature will be set free from the bondage of sin, Romans 8, 19 through 22. All of creation is now under the, uh, the, the physical rule of Christ. That rule was bought and paid for with his blood, and now he is simply ta- uh, uh, obtaining, or I should say taking possession of that in which he has purchased. And number four, It will be the answered prayers of the saints when he says, Thy kingdom come. It will also be God's final demonstration of sinfulness of sin and the wickedness of the human heart apart from God's grace. And these are clear reasons for the necessity theologically for the millennial kingdom. Now it says that we will rule with him and reign with him during that period of time. But what do we know about that period of time? Let me read a couple passages for you, if I may, found in the book of Isaiah. Isaiah writes, he says, 
It shall come to pass in Isaiah 2, verses 2 through 5. It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountains of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains and shall be lifted up above the hills and all the nations shall flow to it. And many people shall come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of God, the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his way, and that we walk, may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He shall judge between the nations, and shall decide disputes for many peoples, and he shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war any more. O house of Jacob, come, let us walk in the light of the Lord. But further describing this in Isaiah eleven six through 10, this famous passage that I'm sure you've read on a card or in an email at some point, The wolf shall dwell with the lamb, and the leopard shall lie down with the young goat, and the calf and the lion and the fatted calf together, and the little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze, their young shall lie down together, and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. Wouldn't you like to see that? That'd be interesting. The nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra. And the weaned child shall put his hand in the, in the adder's den. They shall not hurt or destroy in my holy mountain. For the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. And in that day the root of Jesse, who shall stand as a signal for the people of, the, uh, of him, shall the nations inquire as, he, as his resting place, shall be glorious. And of course, Isaiah goes on to talk about Israel's secured blessing during the millennial kingdom. Finally obtaining that peace that they have so longed for in Amos 9, 11, and 12. Zechariah in Zechariah 13 demonstrates the moment of devotion for the nation of Israel during the millennial kingdom and spells out for us those moments that Israel simply worships at the feet of their Savior. But you and I, in our resurrected state, what what shall we be doing? Well, the Bible actually tells us that too. We'll be cutting the grass, mowing the lawn. No, I'm kidding. Wow, you guys are really, really quiet today. Hello, anybody out there? Daniel 7 tells us very clearly that in the end, the holy people of the Most High will be given the kingdom and they will rule forever and ever. Then the time arrived for the holy people to take over the kingdom. Then the sovereignty, the power, and the greatness of all kingdoms under heaven will be given to the holy people of the Most High. His kingdom will last forever and all rulers will serve and obey Him. In the New Testament, Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 6, Do you not realize that someday we believers will judge the world? And since you are going to judge the world, can't you decide even these little things among you today? Don't you realize 
that we will judge angels so that you should surely be able to resolve ordinary disputes in this life. And Revelation 2, to all the victorious who obey me to the very end, to them I will give authority over all the nations and they will rule the nations with an iron rod and smash them like clay pots. They shall have the same authority I receive from my Father, and I also give it. Uh, I will also give them the morning star, the glory that comes with it. These are the these are the promises that we will rule and reign with Christ during this thousand year period of time. Sin and death no longer have effect upon us. For those who enter into the millennial kingdom are those who actually made it through the great tribulation period. They are still in natural form. Sin and death still reign within them. But you and I who have put our faith in Jesus Christ and have been taken in the rapture and then will return with the Lord in His glory will reign with Him this thousand year period of time promised to us in Scripture. And you're like, man, this is getting a little wild here. I didn't hear some of these things. Well, we're not done yet. There is still yet more to come. Now in verse 7. Now when the thousand years have expired, Satan will be released from his prison and will go out to deceive the nations which are in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them together to battle, whose number is as the the sand of the sea. Satan must be released one more time. With his absence during the thousand-year period of time, many have asked the purpose of his absence. And one scholar, I believe, nailed it on the head when he wrote that during the thousand-year millennial period, without the influence of Satan upon this world, man has no choice but to deal with the depravity of his own heart. Meaning we are faced with the reality that we are not the good people that we want to believe that we are. The Bible clearly tells us that our hearts are desperately wicked. Who can know it? But in the absence of Satan's influence upon this world, we are then personally confronted with our own personal depravity and therefore realize that we need a Savior in Jesus Christ. One of the great lies that have condemned so many people to hell is to convince an individual that they are good enough, smart enough, and gosh darn it, God just likes them. And they can walk into the kingdom of heaven in their own righteousness. People often want to compare themselves with some of the most you know, depraved individuals of our society and say, look, I'm better than Hitler. Well, that's good. Talk about lowering the bar, you know. I asked one person if they believed that they were as good as Billy Graham, and they said, well, I don't, I don't know if Billy, you know, who Billy Graham is. The point of the matter is, is that the standard is not Adolf Hitler. It is not Billy Graham. It is Jesus Christ. And therefore, we all fall short of the glory of God and are in need of a Savior. And during this thousand-year period of time, I believe that we are going to truly see the depravity of man's heart. 
You know, everything today is amplified and magnified in the world system in which Satan has created, that it contains the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, and the pride of life. That's enough to contend with. But then you have the influence of Satan himself and his demons. You have the uh, ideologies that he put forward that Paul warned us against stating that there are philosophies in this world that will rob you and cheat you. The Greek word there is used, it's mugged. They're going to mug you and leave you for dead, these philosophies. Because each and every one of them diminishes and dissolves the sufficiency of Christ in the mind and the heart of the individual. But without Satan's influence, we are going to see how evil and wicked we actually are. One of the great tragic byproducts of the self-esteem movement is this that we no longer look at ourselves objectively and fruit of this movement has been the fact that we no longer take personal responsibility for our failures but like to contextualize them in the statements that i'm a mere victim or someone else made me do it and it's their fault or now that we see the ultimate conclusion of self, and that is entitlement. Everybody owes me. That's what's happened. We adopted this ideology. We adopted this philosophy. We applied it. We told everybody that our society will get better if they just realize their personal self-worth. But the depravity was meant to echo within our mind and heart and bring about conviction of our guilt and sin before God. And then God releases us through the gospel once we embrace him as a savior. And then he just doesn't uh, just give us a new life. He gives us a whole new birth. And old things have passed away and all things become brand new. But during this thousand year millennial period, we will be confronted with the depravity of man's hearts. But Satan also must again lead one final rebellion. Gog and Magog are mentioned here from Ezekiel 38. Nations that are gathered together in this last stand before God. But this time, instead of Jesus Christ returning, God just deals with them once and for all. As verse 9, they went up on the breadth of the earth and they surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city, which is Jerusalem. And fire came down from heaven, from God, excuse me, out of heaven and devoured them. Enough is enough is enough, right? It's over. Then the devil who deceived them was cast into the lake of fire and brimstone where the beast and the false prophet are. And they will be tormented day and night forever and what? Ever. There is the doctrine of annihilism is returning to Christian circles. Charismatic churches are now, some charismatic churches, Pentecostal churches, are adopting the idea of annihilism, meaning that the believer in Jesus Christ goes to heaven, but the individual who dies apart from Christ is just annihilated and they cease to exist altogether. There are others who believe that the annihilism takes place in a short period of time after their condemnation to hell. But that's not what the Bible says, does it? As you and I in Christ have been given eternal life, those who die apart from Christ are given eternal existence in hell forever and ever and ever and ever. 
we must understand that there is an eternal punishment for our rejection of Jesus Christ. Verse 11. Then I saw a great white throne, and him, this is Christ, who sat on it, from whom's face the earth and the heaven fled away, and there was found no place for them. And I saw the dead, small and great, standing before God. And the books were open, and another book was open, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged according to their works by the things in which were written in the books. God opens up the books, and each individual personally stands before God, and recorded in those books is every thought, word, and deed of our entirety of our life. Showing and demonstrating and reminding us of the wickedness of our heart that manifested itself in sin. And James says, once sin is conceived, it brings forth death. But then he consults a second book, the book of life. And it states now for us that anyone not found in the book of life is also cast into the lake of fire forever and ever. It is at this moment in time that that verse is fulfilled that Paul gave us in the book of Colossians, that every knee shall bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is God. At that moment in time, the one who did all that he could to save them as individuals, they are confronted by. And everything that they had done, that they now personally have to hold, uh, personally are held accountable for by God. They have no defense, they have no rebuttal, they have no counter-argument. They will be unable to justify any of those wrongdoings before the judge who gave his life for them if they only were to believe in him. All those things that the psalmist says that the wicked and the corrupt get away with day in and day out. I remember in Psalm 73 when David is anguished over the corruption and the people getting away with corruption, but then his heart completely turns when he remembers that they will all be held personally accountable by God for those things that they have done. And this is that moment when those books are open, those ledgers are kept. Now for you and I in Christ, it's amazing. Because remember the psalmist said, for those who have found Salvation in the Lord, our sins are as far from the north as the south and the east as of the west, the cross. See, there's nothing in those books any longer that pertain to us. Or, if there is, it's been crossed out due to the fact that we've been found in the book of life. But those apart from Christ will stand there confronted with their sin before a holy God terrifying moment and the sea gave up the dead who were in it and death and Hades delivered up the dead who were in them and they were judged each one according to their works then death and Hades were cast into the lake of fire this is the second death the death that those who experienced the first resurrection shall not encounter I like to say it this way, you know, you live once, you die twice. If you live twice, you die once. As death and Hades, this is the fulfillment of all that God had said. 
those words that echo out in 1 Corinthians 15, O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The last enemy alleviated and destroyed forever. And anyone not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. The Bible says that, or gives us the impression, I should say, that everyone's name is written in the book of life. They are blotted out at the moment that they permanently reject Jesus Christ. And those who remain in the book of life have found new life in Jesus Christ. Is your name still in the book of life? It is only through the death and resurrection that our sin can be atoned for. At the moment that we come to saving faith in Jesus Christ, not only does Christ wash away permanently our sin before God. In the Old Testament, when sacrifices were brought on, uh, unto the Lord, uh, it was a covering. And the word in the Hebrew was kofar. It was a simple covering until they had sinned again and they needed to repeat that action once again. But the New Testament tells us that when Christ gave his life, it was a permanent atonement. It was a permanent washing away of our sin. But see, what we fail to understand that if Christ simply washed us clean, we would be brought to what I consider a zero-sum gain, right? Because there are those sins of commission, those things that we do that we are not supposed to do that have been dealt with through the blood of Jesus Christ. But Christ also tells us that there are things that we need to do to be right with him. And when we don't do those things, those are sins of omission. So the only way that Christ could bring us to that place of perfection before God the Father, he not only washed away our sin, but then he robed us in his righteousness, that we may stand before God the Father perfect, even though we know practically we are far from it, aren't we? That's like we like to say here at our church, we're all works in progress. And that's why I would hope that we would give each other a lot of grace, because some God's really working on, some God has been working on for years. Some have just started the process. But we're all works in progress. God is working in us all for his purposes and his glory. But none of that would be possible if it wasn't for the person of Jesus Christ. Not only cleansing us of our sin, but giving us that robe of righteousness to stand before the Father as guilty as all get out and yet to be, hear those words, you are right before me. And that's only possible through Jesus. Jesus said it this way. I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. As one of my favorite scholars, John Wilverd, wrote, the millennium is no optional part of God's plan for the end times. It must occur for God to keep his promises to reward the faithful with authority, redeem creation from the curse, and realize the biblical covenants by fulfilling God's promises to Israel. Father, we thank you for your word today.